0: Sir, we have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned, we have remonstrated, we have supplicated, we have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted, our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insult, our supplications have been disregarded, and we have been spurned, with contempt, from the foot of the throne. In vain after these things may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged, and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest shall be obtained, we must fight. I repeat it, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be next week or next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies shall have bound us hand and foot? Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty, and in such a country as that which we possess, are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear, or peace so sweet, as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty, or give me death. Those immortal words were spoken by Patrick Henry of Virginia to the House of Burgesses on March 23, 1775, less than one month before, as he put it, a gale swept from the north that brought a clash of resounding arms namely the shot heard round the world in the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which took place on April 19, 1775, in Massachusetts. This is Prof. CJ calling down yet another incendiary intellectual airstrike against the powers that be. This is the Dangerous History Podcast, Episode 58, The American Revolution, Part 1. In this episode, I'm going to be covering the prelude to the outbreak of full-fledged fighting, starting in 1763 with the end of the Seven Years' War, also sometimes known in America as the French and Indian War, and proceeding through years of escalating tensions and stopping in 1774, just short of the outbreak of full-blown war. In other words, we'll leave off right around the time that Patrick Henry delivered that famous address from which I just read... Next time, I'll pick up the story with 1775, the crucial and most revolutionary year of the war, especially the spring of that year, which I consider in many ways the high point of American history, and then through the summer of that year, when the homegrown oligarchs largely co-opted the revolution for their own purposes. In the course of this multi-part series, I'm going to look at the American Revolution as much as possible in a way that's as different from most versions of the story as I can, applying the same critical, cynical analysis of the powerful as I always do, and in the process, I'm going to expose as much hidden but real truth as I possibly can. Truths that can be good, bad, ugly, and of course, often dangerous. Some disclaimers at the outset, I'm not going to cover every aspect of the Revolutionary Era. Can't do it. That would be, for practical purposes, impossible. There are thousand-page and multi-volume books on the Revolution that still can't cover every angle of the story, so if I leave something out that you're into, sorry, I can only do what I can do in the time that I have. Also, rest assured that there are aspects to this era of American history that I will no doubt cover as standalone episodes down the road at some point. So if there's some particular anecdote or angle or the story of a particular individual or a particular battle, who knows? It's possible down the road I might cover that as a standalone episode anyway. This is this series is just going to be my overview so it's going to be looking at the big picture and then occasionally zooming in on things that I happen to have, you know, studied recently or or have in my notes or whatever that I find interesting or unusual or that contradict the established narrative or the perceived version of the American revolutionary story in some way. Also, I'm not going to say much about the money angle of the revolution, uh, much if at all, because I already talked about that some during the history of the U.S. dollar series. But I just want to make clear at the start of this series that The American Revolution is much more complicated of a historical event than most people, whatever their ideological predispositions, typically make it out to be. I find many inspiring things, but also many tragic and reprehensible things, and before you get angry at me if I attack any of your sacred cows, please listen to another quote from Patrick Henry. For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. So if you're willing to know the whole truth, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I invite you to come along with me on the Dangerous History Podcast's coverage of the American Revolution and the War of Independence. And we start our story at the end of the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. And this was a war fought by Britain against France and uh, some of her allies, including Spain. And it truly was a global war. They were fighting in in most of the seas of the world. there were there was fighting on multiple continents, including in Europe, in the Americas. Um, there was also fighting as far away. Um, as India and fighting in the Western Hemisphere, including not just mainland North America, but in the Caribbean, too. Long story short, I'm I'm not going to cover that war. That's not the point of this episode here. I would recommend, if you're not familiar with the Seven Years' War uh, and its impact on America in particular, that you check out the work of an historian named Fred Anderson. He's got two books. One is a bit longer and more scholarly. The other one's a little shorter, a little bit more readable, but still, you know, very good, solid work. Um, The longer, more scholarly one, I believe, is called The Crucible of War, and the shorter, more easily read one is called The War That Made America. And the historian's name, again, is Fred Anderson, if you you just want a good narrative um, covering most of the aspects of, of that war as far as in America, which is really the turning point of the war, for it's in North America that the British really get the upper hand and break French power. And the British did win big in this war, especially in North America. This is the war in which they take Canada away from France. Also, not nearly as big of a deal at the time in terms of, of you know money and land, but still mattered, was uh, Britain got Florida from Spain as well. In addition, there was a big chunk of land um, in between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River that had been in dispute. And as a result of winning this war, the British win claim to that as well, particularly the land kind of just west of pennsylvania and just south of the great lakes that was the real friction zone in north america where fighting had broken out in the first place at the start of of the french and indian war actually several years before war was even declared and um, by winning the war the british also firmed up their claim as, as that being part of their imperial turf so as a result of their victories in this war the british have solidified their claim to literally everything in North America east of the Mississippi River. But the war, though the British had won big, had cost them dearly in in financial and material terms and so on. They had run up a massive debt. And so as soon as the war is over, they're looking for ways to deal with that problem. And one of the things they wanted to do was to not have any big wars for preferably at least about 20 years. Now, in light of, you know, 12 years later, the Revolutionary War starts, they obviously didn't didn't uh, succeed in that endeavor. But one of the first things the British government did that angered many of the colonists was to issue something called the Proclamation of 1763. The British government's new policy was to try as much as possible to separate white settlers from Indians on the frontier. And so it drew a line approximately at the crest of the Appalachians from New England all the way down to North Georgia. And then they said no new white settlers could no new white settlement could take place west of that line. Now, the British were doing this because they understood that if lots of white settlers started to press west of the Appalachian Mountains, there were lots of Indians on the other side. Sooner or later, they're going to run into problems and there's likely to be war. And the British just don't want to have another war anytime soon. They want to pay off the debt from the last one. This ended up being a really bad policy, though, from a practical standpoint, because, number one, it royally pissed off a lot of colonists, including a decent number of guys who later get known as founding fathers, many of whom were major real estate speculators with names like, I don't know, George Washington. Lots and lots of people in America, including many wealthy, influential people, wanted in on that real estate west of the Appalachians, and now they're told by the British government, hey, hands off, that's reserved to the Indians. And then at the same time, It wasn't even really that enforceable of a line anyway that, you know, basically think about a line that runs roughly the length of the Appalachian Trail. How are the British going to effectively patrol and police that line and make sure no white settlers are going west of that with 18th century technology of surveillance and transportation? So it was the worst of both worlds. The policy angered a lot of uh, colonists, but it also was not even practically that enforceable. Other than that, the British government quickly started looking for ways to extract more revenue from the North American colonies than they had gotten previously. Now, let's look at it from the perspective of the British state. They had just won a war, but now had massive debts to try and deal with. And they looked at it as they'd fought the war largely on behalf of these colonists in North America to protect them from the French and the Indians. And yet these colonists appeared to not be paying their fair share. The reality is that at the end of the Seven Years' War, the British people who lived in Britain were literally some of the highest taxed people on planet Earth at the time. They were being taxed all over the place. Almost everything they made or did or bought had taxes on it. There were property taxes, excise taxes. I think they might have even started an income tax during this war, but I I could be wrong about that. Meanwhile, while the British people back in the mother country were being taxed exorbitantly, The British colonists in the 13 colonies in North America were paying very little into the imperial treasury. And the prime minister at the time, a guy named Lord Grenville, sought to make the colonists pay their fair share of the war costs and also the costs of running and garrisoning and administering this vastly increased empire. I mean, they had added massive territory in Canada and not quite as big, but still significant territory in Spanish Florida. And by the way, back then, the borders of Spanish Florida were a bit larger than the modern day borders of Florida. The panhandle actually went further west and further north than it currently does on today's map. So that's great. The empire has grown, but it also means more costs. It means all these new frontiers have to be garrisoned. They have to have all the you know bureaucrats and tax collectors and whatever stationed there. So the idea was uh, of the Grenville government, supported by the majority in Parliament, and also, by the way, um, scholarship indicates from what we can tell. The initial efforts to make the colonists pay up more were also pretty popular amongst the British general public. We don't have scientific polling data, but there's a fair amount of evidence to indicate that a lot of Brits, like average people, not even members of the, the political class, felt like, hey, those yahoos over there in North America are not paying their fair share. And technically they had a point. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm an anarchist, so I'm not trying to make excuses for any state anywhere when it's taking people's stuff. But if we take the existence of the British state and the uh, the British Empire as as a given for the sake of argument, and look at it from the perspective both of the British government and of average British taxpayers, you got a situation where they just fought this massive world war in large measure, though not entirely, but in large measure, uh, to protect and enlarge uh, the the British holdings in North America, and yet. You have a situation where the taxpayers in the mother country are paying the overwhelming bulk of the taxes to pay for this war and to now run the enlarged empire. I mean, imagine if, I don't know, somehow it ended up that in the future, all the states east of the Mississippi River were exempt from taxation and all the states west of the Mississippi River in the United States had to pay you know all the taxes to the federal government. Don't you think that the taxpayers... In the western part of the country that now had to pay all the taxes, including the stuff to take care of stuff in the east, don't you think they'd be a little pissed off and a little resentful? And is it really hard to imagine that a politician who said, hey, let's make them pay their fair share would probably have a lot of popularity amongst the people who were paying all the taxes? And again, I'm not saying that, you know, taxation is is great or that the American colonists should have been happy to pay more taxes. My point is, if you look at it from the perspective of The Imperial Metropolis over in London and even a lot of just, you know, average Joe, poor British people, it looked like, hey, those colonists are freeloading and uh, they, they need to chip in their fair share. So one of the first things that the British government does Even before it starts passing all those new laws, many of which you've probably heard of in grade school and have a vague idea what they are, but it might be wrong, Um, even before they start passing new laws and taxes and things like that, one of the first things the British government starts to do is to just dust off old ones and say, hey, we've got all these taxes and trade regulations on the books that have not really been all that well enforced out there in the colonies and so, for example, the Navigation Acts, which were intended to impose a mercantilist scheme onto the imperial economy, had been passed a hundred years before the Seven Years' War, in the mid-17th century, in the 1650s. You know, and a lot of these Navigation Acts, which were intended to micromanage the trade of the empire for the benefit of the mother country, ultimately... Through a strategy of mercantilism, um, a lot of these had been on the books for a century and had only been very inconsistently enforced actually out on the ground in the colonies. And so smuggling in many of the port cities of the colonies was such a way of life that, I mean, smugglers were sometimes respected citizens. And it was just sort of like an open secret that the customs officials in town were happy to look the other way and so on, um, you know, for a little little cut. So the colonists who were alive in the mid 18th century, in many cases, had grown up in a system where the imperial trade regulations and taxes were frequently ignored and rarely enforced very stringently. And so when the British government starts getting serious about enforcing them from the perspective of the colonists, it's almost like these are brand new laws now the way many historians have described the state of affairs is that prior to the seven years war the colonies had north in north america had for the most part enjoyed just kind of by default a situation of what's called benign neglect or salutary neglect in other words because of distance and and other factors the british government had just not been really concerned as a top priority with uh, micromanaging the colonies and making sure they're abiding by all the trade regulations and paying all the taxes and whatnot. And so the colonies had developed over many generations, in some cases over a century prior to the Seven Years' War in the older colonies, um, they had they had developed long-standing traditions of being, for the most part, left alone by the mother country. And they had gotten used to local self-government they had gotten used to very few political questions being made um, at a level higher than that of the colonial legislature and colonial governor in the particular colony in which they resided. And in the case of a lot of the New England colonies, a lot of the important government decisions were made even more locally than that. It was, you know, the town meeting. So you have these people who are used to um, not paying very many taxes to the mother country, used to not having the mother country micromanage, uh, used to making their own decisions locally as far as many of these things go. And again, I'm not arguing that there, there weren't, um, you know, that, that local and, and colonial government couldn't also be um, onerous or oppressive or what have you at times. It clearly could. But the fact of the matter was that people got used to mining their own business over there. And now here comes the mother country saying, oh, we're actually going to treat you like uh, like colonies for real now instead of just, you know, not paying attention to you. So the period of um, benign neglect, the period of being free just sort of by default because no one's paying attention is going to come to. Uh, an end or at least be threatened by the actions of the british government after the seven years war and so you have to understand from the perspective of many of the colonists who supported the rebellion from what we can tell based on the things they said and wrote a lot of them seem to have seen it as they were not grabbing new rights and freedoms that they had never enjoyed but rather they were trying to um, protect or at most regain rights and freedoms that they felt they had enjoyed prior to um the the revolution or sorry prior to the seven years war and its aftermath and all the new taxes and and this brings up an important debate which we'll probably return to in a future episode i don't want to get into it too much here but this debate is always ongoing as to how revolutionary was the american revolution was was it really revolutionary Or was it in a way at most some sort of like conservative defensive revolution? And uh, my answer to that is is uh, I'll get into it more probably in a future episode about the American Revolution. But for now, let's just say my answer is one that probably wouldn't make neither side of that argument fully satisfied. My answer is kind of somewhere in the middle and a weird mixture and so on. But that's that's my feelings about the American Revolution in general. There, There's great, inspiring, awesome stuff in it. And there's huge uh, letdowns and missed opportunities and and bad stuff. Um, So, I mean, it's just such a mixed bag. Well, anyway, um, the British start pretty quickly rolling out new taxes and laws and things to try and raise more money out of the colonies. So the first one that really got the ball rolling as far as new taxes go was the Sugar Act of 1764. Now, this is a tax on molasses. Um, coming into the colonies. And in general, what was happening is molasses would come from the Caribbean sugar islands from places like Barbados. It would be imported into the, uh, the North American colonies. And what a lot of the molasses would be used for would be to make rum. That was, for example, a big thing in New England. Import molasses, um, distill it into rum, and then sell that at a profit. Now, you might think if you have a tax on sugar that or molasses really is, is the form it was most commonly you know, transported in. You have a tax on molasses and the colonists um, you know are going to get pissed about it. You might think that it's because the tax on molasses is being raised. But that's not actually what the 1764 Sugar Act did. Instead, the 1764 Sugar Act actually cut the tax on molasses in half. But it called for much stricter enforcement of the tax in other words the british believed that by cutting the tax rate but increasing enforcement of it they'd get much higher compliance because of course the higher a tax rate is the more it's worth the risk of trying to evade it so they think well we'll cut the tax to a lower level but then also be more serious about enforcing it and more people will actually pay the damn tax instead of smuggling And, you know, these and then the later taxes, some of which are much more onerous than this, we'll see Um, the way I see it is there is an argument to be made that they're just trying to make the colonists pay their fair share. But I think also it's worth pointing out the way they go about it is in such a heavy handed manner that it almost seems like it was designed to piss these people off, especially considering how many of these people were like ruggedly self-reliant type folks back then almost at times seems like it's designed to piss off a lot of these people the way the British government goes about trying to get them to pay more and by the way you can see how the British learn from their experience with the American colonies later in their imperial history when for example dealing with Canada they kind of gradually gave Canada more and more self-government and never did anything so drastic as to cause a widespread uprising amongst the Canadian population in like the 19th and early 20th century Anyway, the Sugar Act, aside from cutting the tax on molasses, but then calling for stricter enforcement specifically, uh, it it also listed specific goods, the most important being lumber, which was a big moneymaker in a lot of the colonies, uh, and, and said they could only export these to Britain. So the Sugar Act actually contained trade regulations, not directly just pertaining to sugar. And there's all kinds of new onerous requirements put on ship captains and their crews. Um, Captains of merchant ships are now required to maintain detailed manifests of their cargo, and their papers are subject to verification before anything can be unloaded from their ship at a harbor. And even more ominous enforcement mechanisms than that, such as customs officials, are now empowered to have all alleged violations of this tax tried in admiralty courts, military courts, rather than in the regular local colonial courts. Because, of course, in a military court, you don't have trial by jury. And particularly in a lot of the port towns, smugglers were very popular. So if you try a smuggler, in his hometown and a jury of his peers which probably includes a lot of his friends neighbors business associates customers etc um well there's a good chance you're going to get a real life example of jury nullification even if the evidence is overwhelming so that that's why the british government put in this thing about putting them uh, having having these things tried in military courts in admiralty courts but of course to the colonists This is a violation of an ancient fundamental right of Englishmen that goes back to things like Magna Carta, the notion of a right to a trial by jury. So this started to get a lot of colonists angry and speaking the language of traditional rights of Englishmen and that kind of thing. And a few people even started to bring up the the um, notion that, again, it goes back to ancient English tradition that you're not supposed to be taxed unless with the consent given via your representative in parliament. Now, as imperfect as that had actually been applied uh, in real life in, in most of English history, that was still at least like the, you know, the belief, the rhetoric was you're supposed to have representation in order for taxation to be justified. And um, a few people started to raise that already, although it was not, not real common yet. Then in 1765, uh, Parliament rolled out something called the Stamp Act, designed to bring in a lot more money than uh, the Sugar Act. Now, the Stamp Act has nothing to do with mailing letters. It has to do with tax stamps. It requires a whole series of items to bear a government tax stamp, which basically just means, you know, you gave the government some money for this this stamp and stuck it on the item. And the list of things that were required to have these stamps affixed to them in order to be legal included, um, you know, almost all kinds of legal documents, uh, permits, contracts, wills, things like that, and other miscellaneous documents, including newspapers, pamphlets, college diploma, and also dice and playing cards, because the powers that be always want to crack down on gambling and profit from it at the same time. Now, this ended up being a big deal. There were stamp taxes in Britain that hadn't raised as much anger, and in part, it has to do with differences in the population. In the American colonies, literacy rates were generally higher than they were back in the mother country. So when you said that Newspapers and pamphlets had to have a tax stamp that's going to affect a lot more people in the colonies as a percentage of the population than it would if you do it back in Britain. In addition, in the colonies, land ownership was more widespread than back in Britain. So you had a lot more people because they own land who, you know, would have documents such as deeds and other legal type documents that would now have to have um, a tax paid in order to have a stamp put on them and be legal. And then, of course, there's the problem of think about the types of items we're talking about here that now have to have tax stamps affixed to them. they are items that are most commonly stored where? In your home, in your office, in your place of business. Well, how on earth is the British government's agents going to know if you if you have these sorts of items and documents, whether or not those items have the tax stamp on them? The answer is they're going to have to search your home and your office and your place of business. And they're going to do this using what were known as general writs of assistance. General writs of assistance, I would call basically uh, blank check search warrants or fill in the blank search warrants. They were given to the British government officials who would be enforcing and collecting the stamp tax. It basically meant that for whatever reason, um, a British government official could decide to just come search your home, search your office, whatever, and um, say that, oh, he had reason to uh, think you might not have you know, stamps on your documents or whatever. Now, say some British government agents show up at your house in the middle of the night, and say, all right, we're going to search your house, and they do, and suppose you don't have, you know, legal documents, missing tax stamps, or whatever, but suppose they all, they find house in the middle of the night, suppose they find, I don't know, Dutch tea, or some other thing you're not supposed to have, well, they could, uh, you know, prosecute you for that. So in a lot of cases, these things were being used as like fishing expedition type things. Or it could be a personal grudge. Could be, you know, the local tax collector in your town just doesn't like you personally, and so he decides, well, I think that guy's got some um, you know, not properly taxed stamped documents. Let's go find out. And again, this violated in the eyes of many colonists, um standing hundreds of year old years old uh, British rights, such as the right to not be um, have your home searched and so on uh, without a warrant without a a warrant that had been you know specifically uh, made out by a judge specifying the individual and why and so on and what's to be searched for and so on and um, these are all things that later find their way into the bill of rights the fact that uh, they were so paranoid about governments doing these sorts of things now the stamp act caused a lot of anger and upheaval and the place where things got the craziest was in Boston. And from this point onward, Boston is going to be most of the time where the craziest stuff is happening. In Boston, people took their anger to the streets. They attacked the property, you know, the homes of all of those associated with enforcing the act, all the men that they knew were going to be the you know, collectors and, and dispensers of these new tax stamps. And you had this mixture in some cases of class conflict plus other grievances. Um, oftentimes you had a lot of like working class type guys venting their anger against the, uh, the, the tax collectors who were often like upper class type people. But there also were wealthy men on the side um, of the protesters as well. So it wasn't just simple rich versus poor. It's kind of a mixed bag. But in general, the wealthier guys who supported the cause of the protesters were those who would be hurt economically by that particular tax. So there were riots in Boston. There were also uh, riots and disorder in the street in New York and in Rhode Island as well. And around this time is when the Sons of Liberty were organized in Boston, primarily led and organized by the radical uh, street organizer and protester, um, one of the earliest guys that we know of in the colonies to start talking about such drastic things as liberty and severing ties with the British monarchy and parliament. And that, of course, is Samuel Adams, revolutionary firebrand. Now, in response to the Stamp Act, uh, some of the more elite members of the colonies organized a meeting in new york known as the stamp act congress nine of the 13 colonies chose to send uh, delegates to this meeting and there they adopted a series of grievances to be sent to the king and parliament objecting point by point to what they thought was wrong about the stamp act and how it was to be enforced and so on aside from objecting to the specifics of the stamp act taxes themselves they also in this document asserted that the colonists as Englishmen, even though they were living overseas in colonies, they were Englishmen just as as much as the Englishmen back home, and that because of that, Parliament couldn't represent them. They had no seats in Parliament, and uh, since they had no representation in Parliament, they should not be taxed, because that would be taxing without consent. By the way, just as a side note, I'm not a believer in the whole theory of representation. I'm just telling you, you know, what they said. So they said, again, without representation in Parliament, Parliament did not represent them. Without representation, uh, any taxation from Parliament directed at them was illegitimate. So basically they're saying only the colonial assemblies themselves have the right to levy taxes on the colonies. They also pointed out things like trial by a jury is an important right and that using admiralty courts to prosecute civilians was illegal. unconstitutional was violating the unwritten traditions of the british constitution again some of which go back hundreds and hundreds of years to things like magna carta now with all the chaos and disorder in the streets and um you know tax collectors being in some cases uh, beaten up or having uh, being threatened or having their homes attacked things like this um, many tax collectors were not at all eager to try and uh, dispense these, these uh, tax stamps and not at all eager to, um, you know, go out into these streets and be like, here, guys, pay your taxes. In fact, there were several uh, tax officials who resigned in some of the larger cities. So because of this, the Stamp Act was actually costing the British government more money than it was bringing in in revenue. Because of all the chaos and disorders and problems. And so bowing to fiscal reality, in 1766, Parliament actually revoked the Stamp Act, but at the same time it did that, it passed something called the Declaratory Act, which said that Parliament maintains the right to legislate for the colonies, quote, in all cases whatsoever. So I I call that like the Nanny Nanny Boo Boo Act, you know, they're saying, oh yeah, we're going to get rid of this one tax because we feel like it, but uh, don't you get any ideas, colonies, because we're still the boss, we're still in charge, what we say is still the law. In 1767, Parliament decides to try again to get some revenue out of the colonies, and they pass something known as the Townsend Revenue Acts, which were another attempt by the British to get you know, some more tax money flowing into their treasury from these colonies. The taxes were on such everyday items of the time as paper, lead, paint, and tea. Again, most of the colonies did not like this, but again, Massachusetts caused the most uproar and the most problems, including disorder and violence in the streets. Tax collectors getting beat up, and occasionally uh, tax collectors and and other people who were pro-government um, being tarred and feathered and lest you think that's like a little cartoon punishment or something that the kid on home alone did to those uh joe pesci and, and what's his name um, trying to come into his house tarring and feathering was a, a, a practice of public um, humiliation and sort of vigilante mob justice that had a long history in england and was anything but pleasant author les standiford says this in his book desperate sons about the sons of liberty quote Although the practice of tarring and feathering may sound quaint to the modern ear, and although it was based in the intent to ridicule, it was no laughing matter to the recipient. Certainly the image of a hapless crusader wandering about a forlorn promontory with eyes peering out of a blanket of black tar and bristling feathers might be construed as demeaning, even ludicrous, but there would be little funny about it for the victim." Although the practice was sometimes modified to a simple dipping of a victim in a barrel of molasses, followed by a tumble in a pile of goose feathers, victims in the colonies did not always get off so easily. The most common tar used in the practice was gum taken from pine trees. Sometimes it was heated, causing blistering of the skin. Sometimes it was applied straight out of the barrel with a trowel. Sometimes the recipient was allowed to remain clothed, but it was not always so and depending on how much time elapsed in the usual parading of the offender about the community, the tar could easily harden, making its removal exceedingly difficult. Try to imagine removing hardened tar from hair, face, ears, nose, eyes, and genitals. Most victims of the practice lost a good deal of body hair. Those lucky enough not to have strips of skin peeled away with the tar suffered severe rashes. Surely to be tarred and feathered was a humiliating experience, but it was a painful one as well. End quote. And if you ever watch the um, HBO miniseries John Adams, which is actually pretty good, it um, it's 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 a pretty fair account of the kind of elite from the perspective of John Adams uh, from the revolution all the way through to the end of his life. It's well made. It's entertaining. I recommend it if, if you've never watched it. But um, in I think it's the very first episode, they show you what it looks like when a guy actually gets tarred and feathered. And it's not pretty. And in fact, John Adams um, was not a fan of this sort of chaotic street violence stuff that his distant cousin Samuel Adams was often involved in. And in the HBO film, you can see John Adams is like really disturbed by um, the chaos and violence and in, in, in the streets, including the tarring and feathering. Well, anyway, in response to the upheavals in Boston, British troops are sent there um, in order to allow customs officials to do their jobs. At that point, resistance switched from street violence to boycotts of English group of English goods. The colonists decide they're going to hit the Brits where it'll really hurt them in the pocketbook. And so boycotts are organized first in Boston, but then increasingly spread to other colonies, even as far away as the South, often with various forms of crowd action to enforce uh, the boycotts on merchants who were not always willing to participate in them. Because of these boycotts, and they were successful and they were enforced in many towns and cities in the colonies, by the way, um, with intimidation in some cases, you know, people making their neighbors uh, go along with the boycott. Um, but there was never the degree of brutality that there was in later revolutions. Um, there, there was definitely some intimidation and some, uh, threats of violence and and less often actual violence. Um, but there was never the level of violence of the, the more radical stages of the French revolution, um, let alone of something like the Russian or Chinese revolutions in the 20th century, but they would, uh, they were, they were pretty effective Sometimes it would just take a threat, you know, a a very ominous letter to someone saying, hey, we think you ought to participate in the boycott and they get the message and do it. Sometimes it takes more than that. Very often um, a person would be brought into a public place surrounded by a crowd and basically be told, hey, we think you ought to change your mind about the boycott. And it's amazing how often someone would suddenly have a come to Jesus moment and decide the boycott was the way to go. And sometimes enforcing these sorts of things, all it took was a mere matter of shunning. And in these very um, tight-knit communities to have all your neighbors suddenly shun you and not socialize with you, not do business with you, etc., that actually could be quite effective in a real cohesive community. Well, anyway, the success of the boycotts ended up costing the British, uh, by some estimates, more than 30 times the amount of money that um, the taxes brought in as revenue. So in 1770, bowing to economic reality yet again, the British government repealed all the towns and duties except for one on tea, which they left in place sort of for the same reason they had passed the Declaratory Act back in 1776 to kind of say nanny nanny boo boo. We're backing off on this one tax here, but we're still the boss. But the colonists are learning the lessons of, of the reality. They're learning that, hey, when we stand up and we push back, they kind of back down. Now the same year the British were repealing most of the towns and taxes um is when you get the Boston Massacre where a confrontation occurs between a group of British soldiers who were stationed in Boston. This is not where you wanted to be stationed if you were a British soldier at the time. This is, you know, it's it's not pretty and comfortable uh, like the Caribbean outpost might be. It's, um, it's, you know, cold and nasty a lot of the year. Um, it's a very hostile population who don't want you there. Everywhere you go, people are at best being passive aggressive to you and at worst, you know, doing other things. And, um, there was a lot of anger because a lot of the British soldiers there would also, uh, basically be taking jobs from locals. You know, when they had time off from their from their duties, they would, um, basically be like kind of day laborers and, um, they were taking a lot of jobs from a lot of working men in the town who obviously, you know, didn't want these soldiers there in the first place quartered amongst them. And these soldiers were quartered amongst the population. They, they really didn't have much in the way of separate barracks facilities. So they're oftentimes quartered in, you know, right in people's homes. Boston is a city under occupation. It's got, um, I, I think, something like 15,000 people. It's a it's a by our standards today. It's a fairly small town. And so imagine what it's like in a town of 15,000 to have a couple thousand soldiers plopped in there to occupy. Anyway, in this atmosphere, um, there's a situation where an angry crowd confronts a small group of British soldiers. One thing leads to another. The British soldiers end up opening, opening fire, killing five people, and this gets known as the Boston Massacre john adams a cousin of samuel adams and a guy who was definitely sympathetic to the colonists uh, grievances decides to take up an offer to be the defense attorney for the british soldiers who are indicted uh, on charges of murder for the boston massacre and um he's actually a very good lawyer he actually gets the soldiers acquitted and again, the uh, the HBO John Adams miniseries does a good good job uh, depict the the highlights of this trial and so on, and you get a sense of how much a lot of John Adams's friends and neighbors really were pissed at him for taking up the job of being the attorney for these soldiers. Now, what actually happened that led to the Boston Massacre, we'll never know for sure, but the crowd, the the townspeople said it was not really that much provoked that, oh, there were people maybe calling some names and a few kids throwing snowballs and that's it. And then those damn British soldiers open fire. Naturally, the British soldiers tell a different story about a, about a crowd getting very physically hostile that outnumbered them significantly and them, you know, shooting as a last resort out of self-defense where exactly the truth is. We don't know, um, possibly somewhere in between, but I would think probably it's closer to the British soldiers version in this In this case. And I think that's what John Adams thought. And I think that's why, even though he was pissed at the British government over a lot of things, John Adams agreed to be the attorney for these soldiers. Well, things kind of calmed down for a while after the Boston Massacre. Uh, The British even removed almost all their troops from the city of Boston. And things seem pretty mellow. Now, you have to understand, all these things I've been covering so far are unfolding over years. I mean, the the amount of time from um, the end of the Seven Years' War through to the Boston Massacre, you know, we go through it in a fairly short amount of time, and even a book might cover it in, you know, 100 pages or less that entire time period. And understand, this is seven years of these people's lives, that there's this back and forth, you know. Parliament does this. The colonists do that. There's this back and forth going for seven years. Very important um, to understand that while these things are usually covered in class or in books relatively quickly, this is seven years of their lives. They didn't rise up violently for lighter transient reasons. It really was a long, slow build. And it had its ups and downs. In the period after the Boston Massacre, things kind of simmered down for a while. Things amped up a little bit though in 1772 when the british government announced that from now on they'll be paying the salary of massachusetts's governor and its high judges and this was really you might think well wouldn't the people of massachusetts be happy that they're off the hook for having to pay these guys salary and the answer is no because if the colonists in massachusetts are paying these these official salaries that gives them leverage over them But if they're being paid by London, then that means, you know, people obey who's signing their check, right? So if London's paying all these important colonial officials salaries, then London is going to be calling the tune on everything. And so it was in part in response to this, which was perceived as a move against colonial independence, colonial self-government, that committees of correspondence started to be set up first in Boston and later uh, throughout much of the colonies. And the purpose was to communicate And to coordinate um, revolutionary or I don't know if you'd call it revolutionary yet, but, um, you know, rebellious protest uh, leadership between different towns and even different colonies, writing letters back and forth to try and uh, keep everybody abreast of what's happening in Boston and what's happening in other places, trying to coordinate some of their um, resistance efforts and so on. One of the founders of this was, of course, Samuel Adams yet again, and many of the members uh, would have been Sons of Liberty. And by the way, Sons of Liberty, though it started in Boston, uh, spread to many other places as well. Um, there, there were even Sons of Liberty as far away as Charleston, South Carolina. Now, in 1773, um, Parliament thinks it's finally figured out a way to get more money out of these colonies without pissing them off. And in the process, they're also going to do a bailout of sorts. To the British East India Company. Now, the British East India Company is a chartered company, is a private corporation. It has stockholders, it seeks to make a profit and so on, but it's also kind of tied up with the government and was given special privileges and, and a charter by the government. And in the case of the East India Company, their, their uh, government privileges, they're granted a monopoly on all British trade throughout the British Empire uh, with the East Indies, meaning kind of India and East Asia. And this is very lucrative trade to have a monopoly on. But of course, like all governmental and quasi-governmental um, companies, uh, the British East India Company tends to be very badly managed and um, is oftentimes losing money. And, you know, this is what always happens to corporations that, are, that don't have the discipline of competition uh, to keep them honest and efficient. So anyway, the 1773 Tea Act is designed to give the British East India Company a financial shot in the arm and also simultaneously raise some more money from the colonists and to provide colonists with cheaper legal tea than smuggled tea. So Parliament, I think, thought this would be a win-win-win, right? That the British government would get more tax revenue, the East India Company is going to get more money, and the colonists themselves will actually save money by obeying the law instead of doing what they often did and, and uh, buying smuggled tea, uh, Dutch tea, and so on. So the, the Tea Act said that the East India Company would be allowed for the first time to ship tea directly directly from india to the american colonies previously they'd been required by law to ship it via britain first which added to the transportation costs and so on and then americans would pay a lower tax rate than before um so again looks like it'll be a win-win-win right uh, the colonists will be able to buy legal tea for cheaper than smuggled tea and uh, parliament gets money east india company gets money everybody's happy right right but but a lot of colonists are really livid about this why? Well, one thing I think that's happening is at this point, the, the colonists, many of them have just kind of had it to the point where they don't like being told what to do, even if it means obeying the law will be cheaper than breaking the law. They kind of have the attitude of like, screw you. You know, don't tell, tell me to buy this cheap legal tea. I'll buy the expensive illegal stuff. Thank you. You know, people oftentimes will just get to that point where you're telling them to do something and um, they're so resentful of you bossing them around that even though what you're telling them to do might actually make logical sense and be beneficial to them, they won't do it. But part of it clearly also is that a lot of people, including a lot of influential people in the port cities on the coasts, make a lot of money and have for sometimes generations from smuggling and a lot of guys who were involved in the early resistance movements in these towns were, at least to some degree in their business dealings, smugglers. Probably the most notorious example of this is John Hancock in Massachusetts. He's one of these guys. He's a very uh, prosperous merchant, and a big part of his business has long been smuggling. And now, um, you know, he's basically going faced with the threat of being undersold by legal tea. So when the ships come into the harbor bearing this tea, they they park and they can't be unloaded because no one in in town is willing to go participate in unloading the cargo. Um, Everybody's, you know, worried. Everybody involved with with the ship and the cargo is worried that they're going to be attacked or something like this. And so uh, the ship just kind of sits out there for a while full of all this uh, new East India Company tea, And that, of course, is when. The Sons of Liberty carry out the famous Boston Tea Party where they dress up as Indians. Not that they're fooling anybody, but this is there's a long-standing tradition in British history of rebellious sort of vigilante types dressing up in, in some kind of elaborate or dramatic costume. And I think that's really what they're doing when they dress up as Indians. And it's not like the British government is actually going to think, oh, crap, it was Indians, right? There's, there's, there hasn't been a Mohawk Indian uh, anywhere near Boston in years by this point, I think. But anyway, they go out, they get on the ship, and of course they chuck all this tea into the water. We're talking, um, in today's terms, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cargo, destroyed. And understand, this this is a fairly revolutionary act. They're trespassing and destroying property. Now, it's the property of a quasi-governmental mercantilist corporation, but nonetheless, it is, you know, they're sneaking into something and destroying property. When the Tea Party happened, a lot of people in Boston and in other colonies actually, including a lot of people who had been, you know, involved in resisting the government, were actually not on board with it. A lot of people saw it as like, oh, man, a bunch of troublemakers went too far type of a thing. Right. But then what happens is the way that the British government responds to the Tea Party um, ends up being so over the top heavy handed that it actually causes a lot of people who initially thought the Tea Party was stupid to, um, you know, side with those people instead of siding with the government, to side with the Sons of Liberty, ultimately. And this happens so often in uh, revolutionary situations. You know, some radical revolutionary group will do something that much of the population at first says, like, that's crazy, that's stupid, those people are idiots. Um, They don't represent us, right? And then oftentimes, the, uh, the powers that be will overreact so badly that they actually end up driving way more people into uh, the revolutionary fold than before. A, a great example of this much later in history, but also involving the British Empire, is the Easter Rising in Ireland in 1916, um, which, you know, initially a lot of the people in Ireland were like, those are a handful of radical crazies. Uh, we don't have anything to do with that. And then the British government cracked down so hard on Ireland afterward and went so over the top, executing all the leaders of the rising and so on, that it actually caused a lot of Irish people to suddenly go, whoa, <laughs> actually, uh, we're siding with those with those crazy revolutionaries. So Britain responded to the Boston Tea Party with something, a series of laws that were referred to as the coercive acts, which many colonists start to call the intolerable acts, Um Among other things, the Coercive Acts closed the port of Boston and put it under naval blockade until they repaid uh, the entire value of the destroyed tea to the East India Company. Now, understand, Boston's a port city. If you blockade its harbor and shut it down, you're basically shutting down the lifeline of the economy, not just for that city, but even for much of the rest of Massachusetts. So this this is sanctions. This is an embargo. This is, you know, what would be considered under other circumstances, perhaps an act of war. And there were British warships brought in to uh, make the blockade stick. In addition, the coercive acts altered the Massachusetts Charter in ways that gave the governor, and hence London, who ultimately appointed him, uh, much more power at the expense of the legislature, which was more representative of the people. It also authorized the governor to, at his discretion, uh, prohibit town meetings, throughout massachusetts and they also at the same time um fired the civilian governor of massachusetts who had been in office up to this point a guy named thomas hutchinson and they replaced him with thomas gage who in addition to now being the governor of massachusetts was also simultaneously the highest ranking british military officer in all of north america so in a way it's almost kind of like they've put massachusetts under martial law They also um, brought back in large numbers of troops. A few thousand redcoats are parked in Boston, occupying the city. So just a little bit more detail on some of the coercive acts. Um, There was something called the administration of justice act, which allowed any soldiers or government personnel who were accused of capital crimes to be tried outside the province of Massachusetts. And so this, what does this mean? Well, means if, like, a British soldier shoots somebody in Boston and um, there's, there's, uh, you know, a murder investigation and ultimately charges brought that this might not have been a justified killing, um, that guy is not going to be tried in Massachusetts. He's going to be tried somewhere else. And, of course, this is to um, prevent any potential future perpetrators of any potential future Boston massacres from having to throw the dice uh, with a jury of locals again. You know, they might not have a John Adams there to save their asses this time. So you're protecting government officials from having to face a local jury, uh, a jury composed of, of people of the town, you know, that they're that they've harmed. Um, Then there's also the Boston Port Act. This is the one that uh, authorized the Royal Navy to blockade the city, shut down all commerce, and this destroyed Boston's economy. It damaged the economy of much of Massachusetts. And really what the British were doing, they were overreacting so badly to this, they were punishing an entire region. For the actions of a small group of radicals who had carried out the Tea Party and the punishment of the blockade and shutting down the economy of Massachusetts fell, as it always does, disproportionately on the poor of the area um, who, you know, now had trouble making ends meet and, and just surviving. And again, the overwhelming majority of the people who are being punished by this blockade are people who had nothing personally whatsoever to do with the Tea Party. So it's collective punishment. And ultimately what these laws do is drive more people into the rebellious cause. And one more of the coercive acts that I'll mention is the Massachusetts Government Act. And, um, you know, the Massachusetts Colonial Charter that they were under prior to this had been in place since 1692. And it let the voters of Massachusetts, those qualified to vote, um, to elect the lower chamber of, of the legislature and it gave those legislators the right to then nominate who would serve in what was called the council which was the upper chamber of the legislature those people in the upper chamber were then charged with advising the governor now under the massachusetts government act The charter was altered so that the counselors, those who would be advising the governor, would, instead of being appointed by the lower chamber of the colonial legislature, be appointed by the king. This is also the act that shut down most of the town meetings in the colony. So now you got General Thomas Gage as the simultaneous uh, governor of Massachusetts and commander in chief of British Army troops in all of North America. Now, back in England, again, as far as we can tell, most people seemed to support these actions, seeing the colonists as, as unreasonable and not willing to pay their fair share and as freeloaders. There were some people, including some members of parliament, who were sympathetic to the colony's grievances and thought that the British government was being far too heavy handed with them. But they were by no means the majority, at least at this time. They tended to be sort of a few radical fringe members of parliament and kind of equivalent people out in the general population. Now, roughly simultaneous with with all those uh, coercive acts, the British government passed something called the Quebec Act. This dealt with the province of Canada, which the British had only uh, about a decade before taken from France during the Seven Years' War. And there had been a lot of questions about the, um, you know, probably... Not quite 100,000, but somewhere in the neighborhood of, I think, 60 or 70,000 French Canadians who at the time lived in Canada. The vast majority of people in Canada then uh, were French. You know, the large uh, Anglo population of Britain had not shown up yet. Right. So what to do with these people who spoke the French language, were of the Catholic faith, you know, had all the French uh, traditions and legal system and so on. What do you do with them now that they're technically within the borders of the British Empire? and the quebec act of 1774 answered this question it said that french canadians would be allowed to keep their language their customs their religion and even their french style legal system which is different in many ways from the british common law uh, legal system so imagine how this this looked to a um a, a british colonist in one of the atlantic colonies who probably until these things started to be problems in the 1760s and 70s had considered himself a patriotic uh, Briton, and who also, by the way, wrapped up in British patriotism very, very strongly was Protestantism. Right. Imagine to these these devout English speaking Protestants in the 13 colonies what it looks like at the very time that Parliament is stomping down, particularly on Massachusetts and to a lesser degree on some of the other colonies. Um, It's treating these damned Frenchmen, right? These French speaking Catholics with all their goofy alien traditions. Um, And and, I mean, anti-Catholic prejudice was very strong in many of the colonies, especially New, um, New England. At the same time, your government is treating you like third-rate citizens, they're being really nice to these french catholics. that That's how it looked i'm you know, I'm saying how it looked from the perspective of a lot of the people in a place like Massachusetts, right? And some of them even considered the um, Quebec Act to be one of the intolerable acts. Not only did the Quebec Act allow French Canadians to keep all of their trappings of their their culture and their religion and so on, it also attached a lot of land um, kind of around the Great Lakes that had not previously been considered officially part of Canada, it it attached that land to the province of Canada. And a lot of that was land that the um, 13 colonies, at least the northern ones, wanted to kind of get their hands on. And now they're being told, oh, no, 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 all this land here is being given to this uh, colony of French Catholics. So again, royally angered many in the 13 English colonies. Now, in response to the Intolerable Acts, in September of 1774, there's a meeting of leaders from all of the colonies except for Georgia. A total of 55 delegates from 12 of the colonies meet in what becomes known as the First Continental Congress. And the main issues that they're dealing with at the time is how can these very, very different colonies Overcome their differences, their rivalries, their mutual suspicions, and start to try to work together against this. Um, Massachusetts did a great job through PR, through press, through committees of correspondence, um, getting a lot of solidarity from the other colonies, even even all the way down south. Now, at this point in time, the more radical voices tended to come primarily from two colonies Massachusetts, uh, which you might expect, and also Virginia. And the more moderate voices, the ones saying kind of, oh, let's try and talk things out with Parliament, um, tended to come from what were called the middle colonies, in particular Pennsylvania, and the other colonies around that area, you know, New York, colonies that are, that are not Southern, but also not quite New England. And so this division between radicals and moderates um, prevented the First Continental Congress from accomplishing a whole heck of a lot that was important, and um, they finally resolved to stop trading with the british isles to boycott if the intolerable acts were not revoked by december 1st of that year Uh, and they also agreed to meet again the following year at what would be known as the second continental congress beginning in may but while the fancy guys in the powdered wigs and so on in philadelphia were failing to accomplish a whole heck of a lot increasingly regular people throughout the colonies were setting up their own little local governments their own little independent um, revolutionary governments oftentimes called committees of safety or something like that they're setting up their own militias um, oftentimes independent from royal authority oftentimes ignoring royal authority militia officers who in New England were generally elected by men of their local militia company, they resigned en masse their commissions that they held from the governor, and they then proceeded to continue uh, leading their units in, in training. And many of them, in fact, increased the frequency with which they were they were drilling, uh, doing target practice, etc. So you have a situation where the, the official militia units, their officers all say, oh, we resign. And then they immediately go right back to leading their militia unit Just now, kind of off the books, um, preparing just in case. They prepared, um, particularly in a lot of the New England areas. um, They were, you know, equipping themselves, seeing to supplies, uh, brushing up, you know, drilling, practicing. Some of them were organizing more and more uh, marksmanship practice. They were preparing. I, I think this needs to be stressed that when the fancy leaders in Philadelphia, were dawdling and bickering and and not able to agree on what to do, regular people were taking matters into their own hands and making preparations. Quote, Two years before the Declaration of Independence, a young evangelical colonial population accomplished something truly extraordinary. In small communities from New Hampshire to Georgia, it successfully challenged the authority of Great Britain, then the strongest empire in the world. The vast majority of Americans have never heard the people's story. Instead, we have concentrated attention on the lives of a small group of celebrated leaders. Without the people, however, there would have been no independent nation. The patriots who are generally credited with mounting the revolution were in fact the beneficiaries of rebellious insurgents who initially sparked resistance. Without tens of thousands of ordinary people willing to set aside their work, homes, and families to take up arms in expectation of killing and possibly being killed, a handful of elite gentlemen arguing about political theory makes for a debating society, not a revolution. During the two years that preceded the Declaration of Independence, Americans launched an insurgency that drove events toward a successful revolution. By restoring the insurgents to the story we tell ourselves about the nation's origins, we gain greater appreciation of the achievement of the patriots, end quote. That comes from the book American Insurgents, American Patriots by T.H. Breen, a great book. I highly recommend. I'll definitely make sure it's one of the books I put in the show notes for this episode Who were these insurgents, these regular kind of middle class Americans who in many places, um, particularly in Massachusetts, but also elsewhere, uh, long before Jefferson sat down to write the Declaration of Independence, were already declaring their independence through their actions? Well, first off, from what we can tell, a lot of these grassroots insurgents were young. Many of them had only been children during the Stamp Act crisis a decade earlier. There had been a population boom in the colonies in the 1740s, and as a result, the average age in many of the colonies had shifted downward. And a lot of the the people of this baby boom in the 1740s were now in their 20s and 30s um, in the early 1770s. Ironically, because there had been so much trouble in the cities, uh, many of the British government and soldiers and so on believed that um, the troubles were the result of just a small number of radical urbanites, particularly in Boston. But as we'll see, it's going to end up being small town farmers who actually are the first to really take up arms. Small farmers, by the way, made up over 70 percent of the free inhabitants of the colonies at this time. And land ownership was a very important part of their life and how they saw themselves and how they saw the world. Land ownership was much more widespread. There still were a lot of people without land, you know, um, poor people, uh, slaves, indentured servants, whatever. Don't misunderstand. Not everybody owned land. But nonetheless, compared to how it was in Britain. Land ownership was much more widespread in the American colonies, and as a result, these were very independent-minded people, these small farmers, who were very protective of their property rights. As T.H. Breen puts it in American Insurgents, American Patriots, quote, Ownership of land sustained the ordinary farmer's feisty sense of personal independence. Ownership promoted a spirit of possessive individualism. It served to make plausible a powerful grammar of political resistance. This core assumption about the structure of society helps to explain in part why ordinary people reacted so vehemently to parliamentary attempts to tax them without representation. They persuaded themselves that if they ever acceded to an unconstitutional tax, however small, they would soon find their land at risk. Arbitrary seizure was a slippery slope. Today, one might be forced to pay a few pence on tea. Tomorrow, one might lose the entire farm. The British dismissed such fears as unreasonable hysteria, founded on ignorance. But they missed a crucial psychological point: in colonial America, a well-developed culture of land and independence had the capacity to generate formidable political opposition. End quote. So, a lot of these insurgents, particularly the ones who are the first to really get serious and and stand up and ultimately fight about it, tended to be fairly young, tended to be landowners, but not you know massive landowners, small farmers. In terms of their mindset, as Breen shows in American Insurgents, American Patriots, the average person, actually even more so than the elite who were the founding fathers, they were the oligarchs of America at the time, um, the, the average insurgent was actually more concerned with the concept of rights at the time than were the founding fathers, believe it or not. But their concept of rights was a bit different. It was a bit less abstract and enlightenment sounding and a little bit more explicitly religious. Though the average grassroots American insurgent of the 1770s would have definitely agreed with the basic notions of natural rights expressed by the educated elite known as the founding fathers and by the more erudite pamphlets and the writings of people like Locke and Montesquieu and so on, the thoughts and words of average Americans on the matter are strikingly different. The language, the tone with which they expressed their concept of rights was different. The average grassroots insurgent expressed things in far more angry fearful and passionate language than did the elites and the intellectuals furthermore the average insurgent was far more likely to express his grievances and his desire to make things right in explicitly religious terms the impact of the religious revival movement from from just a decade or two before known as the great awakening was clear the great awakening if you don't know was a um religious revival movement that swept through north america in the mid 18th century and that really stressed um, an emotional version of christianity in a way that that hadn't been preached uh, much before and along with that went a lot of kind of anti-establishment and rebellious attitudes and particularly a lot of the dissenting churches meaning that the non-government affiliated churches had a lot of radical preachers who were really libertarian in a lot of their ideas in a way that, you know, it's, it's an evangelical form of Christianity, but don't misunderstand and think it's the same as like a modern day um, fundamentalist. It is not. It is very different in a lot of ways. And a lot of these um, evangelicals of the 18th century were pretty darn libertarian in their political views, uh, which I don't think you can honestly say about most evangelical churches today, at least not as far as I've seen. I mean, I know they're out there, but they're by no means in my in my observation, in my experience, the majority of evangelical churches in America uh, today are are pretty darn um, statist and uh, and even fascistic and warmongering. As T.H. Breen puts it in American Insurgents, American Patriots, quote, in the development of insurgency, evangelical Protestantism probably played an even more significant role than did the possession of land. The sudden and massive adoption of a new kind of religion that appealed more to the heart than to the head radically changed the character of colonial society. Leading revivalists invited ordinary people to challenge the authority, even the legitimacy, of their own ministers. End quote. And of course, those sorts of um, you know radical pastors would be uh, if they're willing to make people question their own traditional ministers. They're certainly going to be willing to, to make people question and and even oppose. Uh, Their own government. And so there actually were loyalists who claimed that the most important factor in bringing about the end of the legitimacy of British authority in the eyes of most American colonists were radical ministers. And they even referred to these radical clergymen who ended up preaching anti-government messages as the black regiment. Oftentimes, these uh, radical evangelical churches were preaching a version of Christianity that placed heavy emphasis on the concept of natural rights that come from God, that every man has just as a gift uh, by virtue of being an individual human being, and that these rights come before government, and they also carried responsibilities that God ultimately expected you to keep yourself free God ultimately expected you to stand up for your rights when necessary. So understand this is very much not one of those versions of Christianity that says, oh, Romans 13 means obey the government no matter what. This is very much not in line with that interpretation of Romans 13. I'm going to read you just a few quotes from newspapers and, and uh other sources that reveal some religious attitudes regarding the american revolution in its early days uh in 1774 and 5 in new england so um the connecticut gazette newspaper in may of 1774 published an editorial that included the following quote the man who refuses to assert his right to liberty, property and life is guilty of the worst kind of rebellion he commits high treason against god end quote a pastor named Reverend John Allen of Boston in 1774 in a sermon, I declare it before God, the congregation, and all the world that it is not rebellion to oppose any king, minister, or governor that destroys by any violence or authority whatever the rights of the people. It is no more rebellion for the people to stand up for and maintain their rights than it is to breathe free air." Reverend Jonathan Parsons in, I think it was a pamphlet entitled Freedom from Civil and Ecclesiastical Slavery, published in Massachusetts in 1774, said the following, quote, As Christians, we may not give up those rights and privileges that Christ has purchased for and bestowed upon us. For giving them up would not only reflect great dishonor upon Christ, but will be inconsistent with the peace and welfare of the people and therefore be quite intolerable. Christian benevolence will inspire us to secure our rights and repair our injuries at the point of the sword. For if one man may defend himself and his rights against an assailant, much more may a whole country defend themselves when their rights are invaded. In such case, the spirit of Christian benevolence would animate us to fill our streets with blood rather than suffer others to rob us of our rights." If we go forth in the name and strength of Christ, he will be our son to guide and animate us and our shield to defend and give us salvation. End quote. The spirit of Christian benevolence would animate us to fill our streets with blood rather than suffer others to rob us of our rights. That is literally the most hardcore, passionately libertarian anti-authority version of Christianity I've ever heard preached. Reverend uh, Zabdiel Adams of a town called Lunenburg in Massachusetts said this in January of 1775 quote, If our invaluable liberties cannot be preserved but by the sword, you will not shrink from danger nor desert the cause, but be of good courage and play the men valiantly for your people and the cities of your God. End quote. Now, um, there's a lot of misconception going on about religiosity in the colonial and revolutionary period in America. And there are a lot of people, I don't know if they, if they know that they're, that they're being inaccurate, if they're deliberately being disingenuous or, or what. But there's a lot of people trying to portray a lot of the founding fathers as being very religious in the conventional sense of the word. And that's just not accurate. It's true that a few of them were religious in in kind of the standard, you know, organized religion, institutional sense of the word. But many of them were not. Many of the guys we consider our founding fathers were sort of agnostics or deists. And um, many of them, you can dig up mountains of quotes from many of the founding fathers saying negative things about organized religion. But the people were much more religious in the conventional sense. But again, a lot of them have this very radical notion mixing freedom and natural rights with Christianity. So here's what um, T.H. Breen says on this split between the grassroots insurgents and the elite, the so-called founding fathers. Quote, It is true that many founding fathers subscribe to forms of deism. These educated gentlemen put their faith in a reasonable God of the Enlightenment. This bundle of ideas, which we associate with such figures as Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson did not resonate convincingly with the militiamen who actually turned out to defend communities like Lexington and Concord, end quote. So you've got young, land-owning, passionately religious, but in a libertarian way, and then another characteristic of these people that ultimately are going to cause the British the most trouble and are going to rise up and fight when push comes to bloody well shove, is that they were well-armed. They were well-armed. Most Free adult males possessed one, if not several, functional firearms. And to many of these colonists, any threat to try to disarm them was like their mental line in the sand or last straw. Because as they understood it, if they allowed themselves to be disarmed, they would then be at the absolute mercy of the government to inflict whatever else upon them that it wanted to. And they had only to look at other places that had stood in the way of the British Empire's expansion and that had allowed themselves to be disarmed and what happened to them afterward. And in particular, probably one of the most obvious examples is uh, Ireland. What had happened to Ireland? The British had largely disarmed the Irish population other than, you know, British government loyalists and the Protestants who colonized Ireland in the 17th century. And as a result, the bulk of the Irish population were completely at the mercy of whatever the British authorities wanted to do. You could have all the revolutionary spirit spirit in the world, but if the state has all the guns and you've got sticks and stones, sticks and stones can break your bones, but they damn sure don't help much against a bunch of guns. So free adult males... Were typically well-armed in fact many of the colonies had laws that didn't just allow free adult males to be armed but actually required them to have a certain mil- minimum amount of weapons and military equipment for use of you know in in militia duty uh, defending against attack and hostile indians and you know before the seven years war against the french and whatever so for example massachusetts which is where the fighting will ultimately break out in 1775 massachusetts had a law that required not just allowed But required every free adult male was supposed to have the following a usable firearm and ramrod for reloading a basic gun cleaning and maintenance kit, a sword, tomahawk or hatchet, a cartridge box, which is a sort of satchel device designed to speed up the reloading process. A cartridge box capable of holding at least 15 rounds of ammunition, which is sort of like the equivalent of the high capacity uh, magazine of its day. In addition, six flints, at least 40 lead balls for the musket and a knapsack blanket and canteen. And some towns would actually provide these to poorer citizens who couldn't afford it. They'd take up a collection amongst the other residents of the town and all chip in to buy, you know, one of their poorer citizens the proper gear. So this is the equivalent. I mean, this is what the military had back then were were muzzle loading muskets. This is the equivalent of if there was a law on the books in an American state today that said every adult male citizen must have an M-16, X number of magazines, X number of rounds of ammunition, um, molly web gear and a cleaning kit and, you know, whatever, a backpack. And the British authorities understood that these people were much better armed than people in, say, a place like Ireland, and they were concerned about it. Now, in years past, the British authorities had been fine with this because they had wanted to use colonial militias to help them in their wars against the French and Indians. But now that they're looking to, um, you know, now that they're dealing with with resistance from the colonists themselves. Now they're not so sure they like the idea of these people being armed to the teeth. So, um, a British general named Lord Hugh Percy, who will encounter later during the battle of Lexington and Concord said this, um, I think in a letter in 1774, quote, what makes an insurrection here, meaning in Massachusetts, always more formidable than in other places is that there is a law in this province which obligates every inhabitant to be furnished with a firelock, bayonet, and pretty considerable quantity of ammunition. End quote. So, Governor General Gage. Really wanted to avoid an outbreak of war with the colonists, if at all possible. Evidence is he was kind of a liberal-minded guy, um, would have been considered sort of on the left politically, uh, but was a guy who, at the end of the day, believed in the sovereignty of Parliament. So while he actually had a little bit of sympathy for some of the colonists' complaints, he also felt like, look, Parliament is uh, the ultimate, uh, you know, lawmaking body, and so if they say you got to pay taxes or what have you, you got to do it. And all all indications are that General Gage really didn't want there to be an outbreak of serious violence. So in order to avoid the outbreak of war with the colonists, he adopted a strategy of trying to disarm them. Now, logistically, it was not feasible with the manpower and so on that he had to go house to house and take everyone's musket. And furthermore, uh, doing that, you know, invading everyone's home and searching for their guns is likely to provoke an incident. So what Gage decided to do instead to have the same effect was to take away their ammunition because of course without ammunition your musket is just a really ugly awkward ungainly club And gunpowder back then was very volatile stuff. So you you would not store a large amount of it in your home. You would store only a little bit for, you know, a few shots of self-defense if necessary or to use for hunting or what have you. But you wouldn't want to have a big, massive, you know, barrel of of gunpowder in your house because, man, an ember from the fire or whatever happens to hit it and your home goes kablooey. So in general, what they would do is uh, in in decent sized towns, they would build something called a powder house, which would be a separate building on the edge of or even a little bit outside town um, where all the gunpowder would be stored for that town's militia company. And the idea was if there was an accident and it went kablooey uh, by having the powder house outside town, you wouldn't accidentally like, you know, blow up the school and the church and all that stuff. But this practice of having ammunition stored centrally for the community at a powder house made, um, you know, gunpowder an easier target for British troops if they were ordered to go find this stuff. So Gage starts planning uh, powder raids, starts planning, you know, missions to send out detachments of British troops into the Massachusetts countryside to try and take away their gunpowder to have the same effect as taking their guns. So in September of 1774, just... As the First Continental Congress was starting to meet down in Philadelphia, um, Gage sent some regulars to Charlestown, which is just across the bay from Boston, uh, and there they seized and confiscated a large amount of gunpowder. A few days later, somehow, a rumor began to spread throughout New England and beyond, and it actually pretty quickly reached as far away as Philadelphia, where the Congress was meeting, and the rumor was that the British had destroyed the city of Boston with a savage naval bombardment that they had just for whatever reason decided to just open up and level the city now this was absolutely false nothing of the sort had occurred but what's interesting is what happened and the story of the false alarm is not very well known I didn't really know it until I read American Insurgents American Patriots and I read it and I was like holy cow this is a hell of a story Um, this false alarm that Boston had been destroyed without orders from anyone Average people all around New England, when they heard the word of this rumor, started to spontaneously arm themselves and begin marching towards Boston in order to go get revenge. As Breen puts it, quote, without guidance from anyone outside the community, ordinary farmers prepared to punish the British troops. Soon the roads were crowded with scores of armed insurgents, end quote. Women pitched in wholeheartedly, uh, helping equip their men, sending them out the door, giving them verbal encouragement uh, to buck up their courage and, uh, you know, make them really want to go kick some ass. Breen describes the drama of this incident as follows, quote, The New Englanders who rushed north to avenge the destruction of Boston persuaded themselves that they, too, were prepared to die. In one town, the minister stepped down from the pulpit and led his armed parishioners on the march to Boston end quote. Now, when the truth of the matter, that the rumor was false, began to spread, word began to spread, you know, out from Boston, no, 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 it actually, the town hasn't been leveled, um, the mobilization ended up being aborted. Nonetheless, this incident, the false alarm and Thousands, possibly tens of thousands of ordinary people who dropped what they did, grabbed their their knapsack and their musket and headed out the door to go try to kick some ass or die trying, showed how quickly and how spontaneously the people could and would mobilize. These are ordinary people. No founding fathers telling them to do this. No generals ordering them to do this. It's just a matter of word spreads through their um, information spreading networks from town to town. They hear the British have taken out Boston. They say, all right, it's time to go Leroy Jenkins, that shit. Grab my musket. Let's go. And the whole time, you know, your, your wife, your pastor, all the other guys in your town, they're all cheering you on. And, you know, many of them, including even some of the pastors, as we heard, are picking up muskets to go kick ass, too. Now, the Tories, the Loyalists, those who lived in America and were pro-British government, they ridiculed this episode as showing how paranoid the insurgents were and how stupidly they'd overreacted to a bullshit rumor. General Gage, though, took this episode as a very ominous threat of what could happen, showing just how quickly and how wholeheartedly the people could rise up out of the countryside and the small towns. And because of this, he became even more determined to, sc- to confiscate ammunition throughout the Massachusetts countryside. Ironically, that very determination to confiscate gunpowder in order to prevent conflict is ultimately going to lead to conflict in April of 1775. Next time, we'll continue the story with the most crucial year in the revolution as far as I'm concerned. 1775, the year the people finally rose up for real this time in open war against what had been up until that point considered their rightful government. And also 1775, ironically, the year that some elements of the colonial homegrown oligarchy begin to co-opt the revolution and start little by little to hijack it for some of their own purposes. Turn it Away from some of the more radical uh, pro liberty ideology of the early revolution. As always, if you have any comments about this particular show, please feel free to leave them in the comment section for this episode at my website, profcj.org. That's P R O F C You can also email me questions, comments, what have you, profcj at profcj.org. You can connect with the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, places like that. Um, You can also subscribe on my website. There's a little email subscribe thing off to the right sidebar. If you put your email in there and subscribe, you won't get any junk or spam or whatever from me. All you'll get is an email every time I post something to my website, which most of the time means a new podcast episode. Every now and then might be an announcement of something else. So if you want to always be up to speed on what's going on at my website, um, throw your email in there. And like I said, I won't spam you with crap. Remember, there are several ways you can support the show. One is to spread the word about it any way you can to people you think might appreciate it. You know, post about it on other websites, spread the word on on social media, what have you, word of mouth, whatever. Also, consider leaving a review or a rating in a place like iTunes or Stitcher which could encourage other people to try to give the show a listen. I've got a good amount of reviews on iTunes, and almost all of them are positive. But so far, I have no reviews on Stitcher. So if you're someone who listens to the show via Stitcher, uh, maybe consider leaving a review for me there um, to help out. You can also help the show financially. You can donate directly, profcj.org slash donate. Um, You can donate via PayPal. You can also donate Bitcoin. You can also help the show financially by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through the links found on my website, and then I'll get a little tiny uh, percentage there. But it definitely does add up and help. Lots of people been have been doing that lately, particularly this month. So thank you very much, everybody who supported the show in any way, whether spreading the word, whether um, donating you know money or Bitcoin, or um, purchasing stuff from Amazon through my links. All of that, very appreciated. So thanks for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Like I said, next time, we're going to cover the crucial year of 1775, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dangerous. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.